Hey everybody, I'm Greg Soul, and this is Why Am I, a podcast where I talk to interesting people and try and trace a path to where they find themselves today. My guest this go-around is Scott Longer. He's first and foremost obsessed with baseball. He's written several books that chronicle the lives and times of baseball players to give folks today the sense of what people were like in the early 1900s. Uh, for that matter, he gives a sense of what America was like and how baseball impacted all of it. Scott marries his love of baseball with that of history and tries to remind us where we come from so that maybe we can anticipate what we have, uh, what we have, like, you know, with us, what we, you know, the things that are around us, what we can appreciate, maybe just a little bit more. So please share this with a friend and help us grow. And I hope you enjoy this chat with Scott. Scott Longer, thank you for joining me on the Why Am I podcast today. Oh, thanks, Greg. It's it's terrific to be here. <laughs> I love it when people uh, people are excited at first. Right? Yeah. It's like, oh, this is going to be so great. We'll see. We'll see. See if I can get you. Oh, All sure. right. So uh, the scenario in which we find ourselves is uh, we're coming up on spring. It's going to be uh, a crisp day. We're going to be standing in line for a ball game, I assume, and... Uh, and there's a pretty good lineup, so we're having a conversation, and I talk about me for a second, and I kind of exhaust that because I don't really have that much going on. Uh, and then it's your turn to reciprocate, Scott. So who are you, bud? Sure. Yeah. Um, now I'm looking looking forward to opening day. Is really what uh, is really what it's all about. You know, I follow the follow the preseason and and the exhibition games. I was reading this morning on what uh, what the Guardians did yesterday, and. Um, but it really all comes down to that that opening day, whether it's uh, 40 degrees or or 59 degrees, whatever in Cleveland, and uh, you know, standing in line and just the anticipation of of seeing the new team coming out there for the first time and what they can do and how what kind of start they can get off to and all the sights and everything. It's just something. It's something really special. I've, I've been uh, going to opening day. I probably won't make it this year, but I think my first opening day I was about seven. So we're talking about like, about sixty years, unfortunately. <laughs> but good, I suppose. Yeah, seeing uh, seeing the Indians and the Guardians, and uh, seeing hopefully what a good preview of what the season's going to be. That that's always the exciting thing for me, just the anticipation and seeing them out there for the first time and seeing how they look and the start they they can get off to. So that that's been something that's um, been with me ever since a child. That's never never gotten old. It's just really a really a great environment, a great atmosphere. When you step out and you see the outfield grass for the first time for the year, it's it's really it's really memorable to me. It still is, and it'll be memorable this year too. That's funny. So what's the what's the feeling you get with the uh, the build up to opening day? Do you get kind of excited like i like when the the weather starts turning i just get spring fever period like i just sort of i don't know it just kind of gets me excited but i guess that you sort of get that experience just for baseball huh? yeah it's it, it to me it's the most exciting time of the year when we get to late march and early april and it's time time to begin the season i mean you can talk all winter long about baseball and what the teams are going to do and read all the stats and, and what all the analysts have to say but it comes down to when they first take the field and, and you just a lot of thinking about it and uh, some anxiety or getting eager to see what the team's going to be like. But uh, there's nothing like uh, the actual start of the season, even though you ramp it up really from October 
Uber on all the way through free agency and uh, and signing guys to long term deals and uh, the trades that are made and guys that are let go. I mean, there's a lot of activity in the winter, but it it all comes down to uh, seeing him take the field. To me, that's just, just the most exciting thing when the guys run out there and it's time to play ball for real. That that's just fantastic. Mm. Does it make you a little emotional? in those moments it does yeah it really does i mean there's something about the game i, I think because to me it's the most fun game to play um because you just can get a couple of guys three or four and throw a ball around if you get enough you can play a game uh you can you can do baseball all the time sure you can do football and, and basketball but baseball to me has always been the most exciting the most challenging it, you get a chance to hit you get a chance to field uh, you get you're definitely going to be part of the game no matter what happens. It's it's just to me the the great game and, and something so much so much fun to, to watch and to play. No, you can play the game yourself, not nearly as well as as the pros do, but you can play, and you can have a lot of fun doing it. And uh, today there's so many there's so many different leagues going on, and um, you know for all different levels. I mean, guys approach me. Um, Oh, over the winter about playing in an over 65 league. And uh, for a little <laughs> while it, it intrigued me thinking about then I realized you've had a knee replacement, your other knees falling apart. I mean, you know, you really want to go out there and kill yourself. So I, I really was interested, but I had, I had to say no for my own safety, but I was really uh, a part of me wanted to go out and play again. It's been, um, geez, about 20 years since I played competitively, but part of me still wants to play. I mean, you know, there's an urge to want to go out there and, and do it where um, I know I can't physically, but it's still there. It'll probably be with me till, you know, till all the way to the end. Like, gee, I wish I could go out and, and take it at bat and try and run the bases. That would, but, uh, you know, never, it never leaves. I don't think it ever, ever diminishes. That's so funny. So it sounds like you were born into baseball then, age seven, your first game. Yeah, I was actually, um, I've, I've told this story a number of times to uh, people when, when I do some talks and things that I helped learn how to read when I was five years old by looking at the box scores in, in the morning paper. I got to recognize the names with how I heard them on the radio, like Calavito and Bell and uh, Pearsall. And I was able to recognize them and then learn the numbers, figure what they meant. Like it's the first number meant how many times they were at bat. The next was a, if they scored a run, the next. And then I figured out the numbers. So I was able to start reading by the box score. I could go down there in, in the morning, put the paper on the floor and look and see Calavito. I recognized the name. One for two with one RBI. I think he might have hit a home run. I couldn't go that far to figure that out. But that was that's what got me to learn reading because I wanted to to read all the summaries about the Indians and all the other teams. So that that got me going into reading. So since five, actually, I've been I've been kind of addicted to it, and and I, I still am. So I'm guessing this is a, a family endeavor, right? Because five years don't generally find themselves uh, into baseball on their own, right? Yeah, definitely. My my grandpa played semi-pro ball in Cleveland and he was left-handed and I'm left-handed. So I kind of patterned myself after him. He, every, uh, usually every Friday night, I would always, I would always get shipped off to my grandparents' house, but he'd have the game on in the summer with his neighbor who would come over and they both are elderly gentlemen, but they listened religiously to the game. And so I would be with them. I would be all of four or five or, or six. And I would take in everything they said and listen. And, and it was just part of my, you know, part of every summer was going over to grandpa's on Friday night to listen to the, the Indians game. You know, of course, when they went on the road, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't listen to the games out of California at, at, at 11. I was, 
long asleep. But uh, I really cherished those times. We'd sit at the table and just listen to the game, and they would talk strategy, and I'd try and soak it up and figure out what they were talking about and and who was doing well and who wasn't. So I've been as a little, just a little guy in kindergarten. I was just heavily involved in the game. That seems like such a different experience than we than we have now today, right? Like, because whatever I think of sports today, it's like you're always watching it on TV, and it's just constant constant movement people are always talking but it sounds like if you're listening on the radio i mean it's a it's a very different relationship you have with and it sounds like you guys had a lot of discourse during it right like so you're you're just talking the entire time along with the game yeah well, to me radio was was fabulous i mean they did televise i think they would televise weekend games clearly the indians were home i think the saturday and sunday games would be on tv to watch and there only was a few channels. I don't know which channel had them, but uh, your main source was radio. And uh, we had good announcers. We had Jimmy Dudley and Bob Neal, and then later Herb Score, uh, Joe Tate and, and, and others. And now we have Tom Hamilton. But these guys were able to really give you a visual picture of what was going on. I mean, I could see it in my head, you know, and they would say, uh, he's rounding first. He's I could just see it and get, and, uh, you know, I just felt I was there. And it was just really exciting to listen to radio. When we got older, um, I was about nine or 10, you know, I would make sure I had to transistor radio. And then um, when my parents are gone, so they, they, they wouldn't know, but I would take the transistor to bed with me at nine o'clock at night or nine thirty. <laughs> I have an earphone and I knew the pregame would start at 10 and I put on, you know, I'd stay awake. I put in the earphone, I have the transistor. I listened to the game from, from Los Angeles when I'm playing the angels and I probably would fall asleep around midnight or 1230, but I would listen to those games and then uh, no one ever knew, but some of my friends did the same thing, but it was like, I couldn't go to sleep knowing I had a chance to listen to the game. And I, I would do that. And nobody was the wiser. And, and uh, we go to school the next day and then we talk about who stayed up the latest. Like I heard the sixth inning. Oh yeah, well, I heard the seventh. Well, I, this well, what happened then? And then they would tell you. And that that was a different, much different time, I guess. You know, your frame of reference is, is much different. But that to me was the greatest thing. And I'll just curl up with the transistor in, in bed, just this little nine volt thing. You know, which this the station at night. The other the smaller stations would clear out, so you get a really great signal from whoever was brought with WHK here in Cleveland, or I'm not sure who it was, or or WTAM. But you could really hear well, and it was. It which to me was so exciting to do where today you can watch any game you want at MLB or the subscription you can, you know, so there's no real, uh, there's no real, um, I guess you don't have to work that hard to, uh, to see a ball game. It's kind of like now, Oh, I'll watch this one. I watch that one. Then it was like, Oh my gosh, I can listen to a game or the game's going to be on TV this Saturday. Those were, those were exciting things. Yeah. Well, I mean, nowadays it really feels like we're um, spoiled for choice, you know, whereas, Back then, you know, if you only got something every so often, it was, it was something special, right? That you would kind of hold in a certain reverence, it sounds like. It, it was. And that, there also, I believe, was the game of the week. So you could see, uh, usually it was the Yankees, but you could see two other teams uh, once a week. Which, you, you know, was like a, a, the only other time you could do that was the World Series. And the World Series was usually, most of the games were in the afternoon. So they would start at two or or two thirty. So you would in elementary school, as soon as the bell rang, you'd dash out the door and run home as far you know wherever you live to catch part of the game. So it was like a privilege to see uh, to see the Dodgers play the Twins or the Yankees play the Dodgers or the Giants or the game of the week. You might get to see Pittsburgh. You might get to see Roberto Clemente like once a month, but you get to see him and Ernie Banks <laughs> and guys you normally you get to see Mantle and Maris and uh, Harmon Killebrew guys, guys around the league like that. It was, you just didn't get a chance. You hear about him and read about him, but then maybe once a week or once every few weeks, you get to see him in action. It was just really a thrill to see Sandy Koufax pick 
Hitch or Don Drysdale. I mean, that was like unbelievable. Like, did you see him? Yeah, I saw him. Oh, it was amazing. You know, it, you just see him like today, you could see him every, you could see whoever you want, almost virtually every game, which is great. And it's terrific. But then it was really special because you had, you had to wait and only get a, maybe see him once a month or, or even not even that much. But that then was just such a, such a cool thing. It's great to see these other players and the skills they have that you could only read about. That's so cool. Do you do you think you get even close to excited nowadays as you used to as a kid? Maybe not as, but I still get excited. I mean, my heart's still when the Indians get or the Guardians, I should say, I'm still working on that. Yeah. When the Guardians get in the playoffs, I, I get it very excited, and uh, especially when they got past the first round, they're playing the Yankees. I was really into that. Um, just really wanted them to beat beat the Yankees. I, I don't have anything really against the Yankees, but we've had a rivalry that goes way, way back. You know, the things have happened over the years. There's been a lot of fights and uh, and taunting. And in the old, old days, people would throw vegetables at the players or, or lemons <laughs> from the seats and or throw hot dogs at the guys. And it was very, very intense with the Yankees for, for a long, long time. And and now it's not quite as, as what it was, but um, I enjoy, you know, I really wanted to see the, the Guardians win and they came close. I thought I thought that they, they might take them. And uh, this year we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But that that's that gets me pretty revved up when when it's the Indians, the Guardians again. There we go. The Guardians and the Yankees going at it head to head for a shot at the, you know, the Yale, the American League finals and you know winning a pennant. That that to me is still very exciting, exciting to watch. Where I have to, I ignore the dog. If he wants to go out, he's in trouble because I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna risk five minutes of, and missing something. So yes, <laughs> during playoff time, he has to just wait and be patient. <laughs> How important do you think rivalry is to uh, sports? I've always sort of, I don't know, like I, I don't, I just don't get that worked up about like an opponent, you know, like enough to like viscerally dislike them. Uh, in any way, sometimes there's individuals that are just, you know, jerks. And it's like, I get that, but like a, a whole person, but it seems like people love a good rivalry. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, that? I, I, I think it's, it. I think it's excellent because it, it gets you more excited at first about the game. You have more at stake because you want, you want to win the rivalry games and you want, you want to do the, you want to do what you have to do. And there's, there's always some players on the other team that you want to see. You want to see them go 0 for 4 or you want to knock the pitcher out of the box early because, you know, they're, they're one of they're some of the best. And you want your guys to be able to do it. Um, and I think that really makes makes it much more fun to watch when it's uh, when you want to beat the Yankees. I mean, it goes it goes way back. It also goes back to like the Steinbrenner years because George was a Clevelander. And, and so, of course, you know, owning the Yankees, we wanted to beat him every time. And he wanted to beat us because he wanted to show up all his friends in Cleveland. And and he didn't want us, his team ever to lose. I guess he'd have his epic tantrums if uh, we took a doubleheader or took a series three games out of four. He would lose it in the clubhouse and scream at everybody. But we we wanted to, we wanted that to happen because it was just kind of like, hey, this is a Cleveland guy, but he's with the Yankees. So we, wanna, we don't want him to be successful when they're in our town. It's our town and we're going to protect our turf. I think that uh, I think that that goes well. And even in, in football, you know, the Browns and the Steelers, it's still you always want to see the Browns beat the Steelers. You know, even if we have a losing record, if we beat the Steelers at the end of the year, it gives you a good feeling. It's just always been that way <laughs> growing up. You know, we don't want the Steelers to win and we want to beat the Yankees. And it, it's all I mean, it's it's neat when Cincinnati comes to town for a, kind of the home state thing. But, you know, it doesn't doesn't mean as much. But um I think rivalry, there still is something to rivalry. I think there's there's something about beating those guys and gives you some satisfaction, whether if you're not winning the pennant or you're in fifth place, but you beat you beat your rival, it makes it, it makes it go down a bit easier. 
Mm. I think it's uh, it's probably like our uh, tribalism, right? Like us as as humans, we like to to find uh, find our tribe, our commonality, and then we yeah. rally. Figure it seems like as soon as you figure out who your tribe is, uh, step two is to figure out who your enemy is, and then you gotta you gotta yeah. root against them. Yeah, it makes for a nice atmosphere, like at home when everybody's <laughs> on the same page. It's real. It's really nice that because uh, always, you know, it, you know, you always will have it at uh, Cleveland Stadium. You know, when we ever play Toronto, you get a lot of fans come down from Toronto, or they'll come from Detroit. But for the New York games, it's usually pretty much a Cleveland crowd, and, and uh, you know, it makes you feel good with all everyone there. Is is seems a little extra friendly, and you know, slap your hand or you know, and, and uh, just cheer with you. It, it's nice. It, it really is. So did you play um, all through your childhood? It sounds like yeah. you said I, up to 20 years ago. So, I mean, you've been playing I, a while. I, yeah, I went as far as I could um, up and I got to high school uh, and could not hit a curveball. So that, that kind of did me in at uh, playing at the high school. But then I, I switched to softball, which is, you know, it, it's it's not the same as hardball, but it's fun and it keeps you active. So I played softball until I couldn't anymore until I was about 47 or 48 when uh, my left knee had some major trouble. I had to have the knee replaced and that kind of that put an end to the career. Um, but but I played from uh, you know little league through then. So yeah, I, I always look forward to, to playing ball no matter no matter what was happening around. And no, when I'm a married guy and have responsibilities, I still made made some time to uh, to play softball and. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, get out there on, on the baseball field. There's mm. not, there's nothing like it to compete even, you know, it's, it's fun. And it, it, you know, you know, the guys you're playing and all that, but still you want to win and you want, you want to do well and, and, and uh, practice once maybe during the week or twice and then, then play ball on Sundays and, uh, and see how it goes, which is, uh, I was reluctant to give it up. And I said earlier that, um, you know, the part of me still wants to play, you know, I know I can't, but I, I really wish there was like, uh, I could wave a magic wand and have youth for uh, four hours. I could just go out and play a double header. <laughs> then I'd be, I said, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm good. You know, I, I'm good for the, for the rest of my days, but, uh, it's a game that's always stuck with me and, and I love football. I love baseball. I mean, uh, basketball, but baseball's always been it for me. Gotcha. So multi-sport, multi-sport person all the way through high school. And then uh, at some point you got interested in history. When did that, uh, when did that come about? It probably all, I was always interested in American history uh, through, through junior high and high school taking, you know, American history classes. So I noticed a lot of the, my fellow students were not interested at all, but I was very interested. So when I got to college, I, uh, I delved more into American history and decided that's something that I wanted to study. I didn't per se want to teach, but I thought about writing, you know, that would be a very helpful with, with writing because I've always wanted to, to write. And uh, so I took American history courses. And uh, then after after Ohio State, I um, decided to enroll at Cleveland State to uh, get my MA in, in American history post uh, post Civil War up to the Depression years. And I've been fascinated by history. I still am to, to learn about how people lived and what was appropriate in their time and uh, what was important and uh, all the differences we have from then and today. Um, I to me, it's it's fascinating doing research. I you know I still do research now. Just just love to go back and check out old newspapers and see what the headlines were and what what was very important then. And looking at all all different aspects of our American history. So I've been really uh, it's been my favorite thing and something that I've um, hopefully have some ability to uh, to kind of um, 
transpose to people when when they read my things and uh, give them a pretty good idea of what if you were alive in 1920, what you might have seen, what what you might have experienced. To me, I think it's important to to know all those things, and and, and I think it helps you in your your day to day life, knowing what was good and what was bad, and and it's, it's I think it's pretty true. You, you learn from you learn from history and not to repeat not to repeat what's been done and and uh, move forward and do things in a, in a good uh, proper manner. Hmm. What do you think about it? Like um, doing all the research, is it the discovery of something you just didn't know, or maybe the discovery of something that people have forgotten? Like, what do you think really attracts you to that? I, I think both of those things really um, to learn about how, how people live to me is fascinating to, to find all the nuances where I can ball players. They, they lived in rooming houses, but you know, where were they? What, what type of a house were they? How many people lived there? How much they paid for room and board, and uh, how how it was done. Uh, you know the old ballparks, how they were constructed, and just in general, um, you go back to uh, World War One or World War Two, and see what the what was written in the newspapers and letters that people wrote back and forth to their to their husbands or their brothers or fathers overseas, and, and back and forth, and 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 uh, the. Uh, the state of the state of people's minds at the time, how how much they worried and how much what they were concerned about, uh, th- those kind of things to me, I, I think are are the best. I like to discover, and you know, looking at um, going to probate and looking at people's wills, you know, the possessions they had, what was important mm-hmm. to them, uh, the houses they lived in, and and the cars they drove, you know, what were those things, the places that they worked at. Um, just it's, it's, it's to me, it's just incredibly interesting to to see how how these things transpire and how a normal regular person who work nine to five, how they live, you know, how they raise their children and their their education and, and those things to me are are fascinating. I like to learn as much as I can about people and about the life and deaths of people. You know how they uh, what they accomplished during their life and when they when they came to an end and uh, and what was said and what was done about them. Looking at looking at people's obituaries from from many many years ago and, and the funerals that they might have just just gives you an idea of what their status was and how people cared about them and uh, of course reading editorials in in the papers you know what the editors had in mind about current events about the politics and and city politics and who was elected and who wasn't and and what their criteria was to me to me it's it's fascinating just looking at those things interesting so it sounds like i was going to guess what your favorite time period was um i'm going to say it's probably around 1910 to 1930s right around in there that's that's pretty right that's right there yeah that's pretty accurate go back a little bit further maybe about to 1900 but yeah that's my my favorite time period um it really is i just uh, i just think life was really interesting then and and so many new things were coming to people they were getting uh motion pictures silent pictures and radio would be coming in in the early 20s uh cars would be getting much yeah. more accessible with 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 henry ford in the assembly line and and how people would, would adapt to those things and uh and incorporate them into their lives how you know you take everyone to the movies you know you, you'd uh you'd buy your first radio and everyone would sit around the radio and the programs that were available and and baseball and broadcasting you know when when they started broadcasting games in the 1920s how important that was to to people to be able to actually they can't get to the ballpark to listen to a ball game especially for people that were at the time they were called invalids people that were older or people that were in wheelchairs or couldn't get to the ballpark this was the greatest thing in the world for them they could actually listen to the play-by-play on radio that this was extremely helpful and it was you know, a typical scene would be at uh 
at your home, you'd run home from school, the game would be on, and mom would be outside hanging out the wash, and there'd be about radios in most of the houses. You just step outside, you could hear the game. Wherever you walked, you could hear the game because everybody had them on the radio. Kids would gather outside to listen. And if your team got to the World Series, your school might be uh, might be into it, and they would bring a radio and let everyone listen to the game. <laughs> from two o'clock on and those things and it was just incredible with the newspapers or large companies like in the department stores downtown they would put up electronic scoreboards and uh, you could just gather there and they would change the score every every half inning and you would have crowds sometimes of ten thousand people standing like in downtown cleveland to watch the scoreboard for the 1920 <laughs> tickets i, I didn't think that's just really great and and uh, and the excitement that people had uh, celebrating in the streets and and all so all, all, the, all those things really uh, really appealed to me and all the individual businesses where today we have all our our department stores and things but then it was all our mom and pop stores and clothing stores and cigar Cigar stores and dry goods stores, things like that. Who right on your corner of your street, you'd probably have a pharmacy that you could go to. So th- those things are what really, really interest me, and I like to learn about them. and And I, I still do that today. Mm. Yeah, I have, um, I have a very romantic, uh, romantic image of what kind of like the twenties or the tens or, or even like the fifties. What it would be like to kind of be alive and yeah. and walking around in those time periods. Yeah. Um, I would say nostalgic, but I, you know, I wasn't alive in those time periods, but. Uh, it's kind of like just this romantic idea of like, I would, I would love to transport in a time machine, even for a day, just to, just to walk around and just kind of feel, feel what it would be like to, to be alive in that time period, what people were like, you know, how they related to each other, all that stuff. It endlessly fascinates me. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it was just a wonderful time, really. A lot of growth in America and people moving forward, more people going to college and more professions becoming available. And there are many villains then too. I mean, there were some, mm-hmm. some bad folks then who committed all kinds of crimes and, uh, and and embezzled from people and swindled people that that was going on. Of course, the, the very, very wealthy would, would really, um, they would kind of live in a vacuum. They'd have these giant mansions with servants and and gardeners and cooks, and they wouldn't associate with people under their under their social social class. And there would be high society articles in the newspaper about who was at the opera and who was at the benefit, where you know the regular person couldn't go or couldn't be seen with these people. It was just understood you're not in my class, so you you can't uh, I can't mingle with you. And that that was something which uh, wasn't pleasant, but it was it, it was very interesting to read about that how people had this attitude. And the women in the women's pages, how some dress like all their clothes came right from New York and they would get their picture in the papers just because they were going to some benefit to to raise money for, for something, which which the well to do usually usually would do. Um, and you'd see your name in the society page quite a bit. That was that's like who it was important to say whose name was always in there. Or regular folks didn't have a chance to do anything like that. They would just read about it and envy these people. It was uh, something that was super, super important with, uh, you know, the Gilded Age after uh, after the Civil War, the early part of the 20th century, where people had opportunity to make millions and millions of dollars in, in the railroads and uh, the oil business and shipping. And uh, you could be, you could rise up from next to nothing. If you were aggressive enough and smart enough, you could wind up being the head of an oil company or you could rise to the top like a Rockefeller or, or a Vanderbilt, people like that who didn't have the old money. They were able to prosper in that time. And it was interesting to see their growth, how they how they accomplished these things and, uh, and got themselves the million dollar mansions and uh, and made the trips to Europe every year, and uh, and had the summer homes. So that mm. that's um, 
not doesn't quite happen today as much. I know there are some, of course, that are, but back then it was quite a thing to uh, have your summer home in Newport Beach and in Rhode Island or or somewhere in upstate New York, and and summer there, spend the whole summer there, then go back to your mansion during the winter. It was quite quite a different time, but no, very very interesting. Mm. So were those uh, was that roughly the time period that your grandpa used to tell you stories about when you were a kid? It was probably ingrained in me, yeah, because my. Yeah. Um, I was uh, kind of a change of life baby. I came along late. So my, my grandpa was in his uh, late 70s, I think, when I was born. But uh, he um, he was born in uh, about 1878 or 1880, I want to say. So his prime time, he was married, and had his family in the early 1900s. And uh, he had a he had a grocery store and he was a, a paper salesman and uh, things. So he was really a very active guy. He uh Bought a home in Cleveland Heights that had, you know, was kind of a nice neighborhood. That's where I used to go when I went for babysitting when I when I was very young. And uh, it was one of those houses that had a complete third floor and a basement. That was kind of like, you know, the, they weren't any, but that was when you could have had a servant or someone living up on the mm. third floor. That's that's how those houses were built. And I loved to go up there and play and then go down to the basement. And and it's how I related to all those things and the stories that they told, you know, about the first car they got. And, uh, and they all came from Europe, you know, stories about coming to america those, those things really were i guess were ingrained in me so young that it just naturally as soon as i went to school and there was a book on on abraham lincoln i had to read it or george washington and, and the civil war or uh, anything about john rockefeller i just had to and then the more i read the more interested i got and it just got uh i guess sort of out of control as you could say is where that was my main focus was learning learning our history but yeah, I think it was my grandparents. Yeah, being being around in that time, I think really uh, buoyed my interest when they when they would tell me about things. It sounds like like uh, the idea of your connection to the radio, and then talking about when the radio came along and how how much of a boon that was, and you were getting to kind of share in that history that with somebody who was there for it. I mean, that's that's crazy, you know, to be able to to have that kind of wealth of knowledge and experience, and you know, yeah. kind of walk a day in the life of somebody back then. That's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, you know, my grandpa saw a lot of games at League Park, but I was too young to even know who the players were to ask him about it. But he saw like Lajouet play and, and, and Elmer Flick and Ty Cobb, Addie Joss, people like that. He saw them all. He went there quite frequently to see the games and what he could have probably what he could have told me about guys. He probably knew some of them because it was kind of like, you know, they, they were regular guys. You could go say hi and talk to them and all. But he was at League Park and in all their their glory years and probably 1920 for the first pennant World Series. But uh, he passed away before I could really zero in on. Did you know him and did you see him play and all of his <laughs> unfortunately but i got i got the general thing about league park and uh and it was interesting because when i started researching some of the names were really familiar and i wasn't sure why when i was researching ball players from the teens and, and uh geez i've heard that name before you know i, I kind of think my grandfather probably was talking about some of the guys then who were playing and i guess because the name like i couldn't figure it out but i've seen this name before you know he's not a not a great like sam crawford yeah, he was a great ball player, but you know, how did I? You know, that name sounds familiar. You know, he probably saw him play and talked about the Tigers, Cobb and Crawford and Bobby Veach and other guys like that. And and you know, New York. You know, I'm sure he saw Ruth and his pretty. So he probably saw Ruth pitch in, in the early days. And guys on the Red Sox uh, with Carl Mays and and uh, some of the other pitchers, Dutch Leonard. So it was kind of neat to me when I was researching and a couple. You know, I see a name and go. I've seen that name. Why, where do I know it from? You know, I, I'm guessing it came from this went in my head, but it's straight and stored there until I started actually Joe, Smokey Joe Wood, guys like that. 
So you definitely have a passion for history. You have a passion for baseball. And so you married the two into uh, writing. So you started writing books about baseball. What uh, what made you choose to write about baseball? Like of all the things you could have written about, why why that specifically? I did a lot of thinking uh, before before I started writing about I want to write and what what should I do? Um, you know, I considered a lot of areas of Civil War. I studied a lot about that, the generals on both sides and the battles. And I thought about it. But then I, I thought that um, so much has been written about it by by scholars and you can't really. I don't think it add all that much to it. What's what's been out there? I mean, you can always write about any battle or any, but I think you know a lot has been said about it. And I thought, I think what really uh, in the back of my mind, what got me going was the book uh, "The Glory of Their Times" that Larry Ritter wrote in probably about 1966 or, or 67. That's where he interviewed a number of ball players who played from the turn of the century through the 1920s, and that that just really interested me. And I always thought about. Each guy has a paragraph here, I mean, or a chapter, or, you know, five or six or seven pages. But I thought about what about trying to do something full length on some of these guys that they appear just reading seven or eight pages. They seem very interesting. What if I tried to write something about guys who lived back then in detail, study the newspapers, um, go to the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown and, and look at the player files and uh, check out the old sporting news and baseball magazine. Maybe there's more than a paragraph on. So I started doing that. I started started looking at guys like Joe Wood and Trish Speaker and uh, got me more and more interested. But what really hooked me was um, I started reading about Addie Joss and that he had died at 31 of tubercular meningitis at the height of his career. Hmm. That, that's such a sad thing. What, what was what was it like? What happened? And the more I started researching and reading, I thought he had an, he had a very interesting life and he accomplished so much in 31 years. And he was in the American story. He came from a very small town in Wisconsin. His dad died when he was young. He had to help support his mom, but he was gifted as a baseball player. And uh, he played for his high school and and he made his way all the way up to the big leagues from Juneau, Wisconsin. You know, how do you, how do, you do that in, in 1900, 1901? And the more I researched and looked at the old papers about his exploits and what he did, I was fascinated. I thought, I think this is worth a book. So I, I worked on it for, for a number of years and, uh, and I was able to get a manuscript and lucky to get it published. And I thought this is probably where I need to be. That um, People bought the book. People are interested in it. There's other people and other teams and, and things that I, that's probably where my, my expertise lies and probably what I know the most. So that, that, that's how I got, got to that. Uh, I guess if the Joss book hadn't been, nobody had picked it up, I probably would have punted and uh, probably gone back to post-Civil War, post-Civil War and look for things or, around there. But luckily it did get published and uh, that spurred me on to, to keep going in that area and, and, and keep writing about baseball. That's cool. So I, I've noticed most of your books are about uh, Cleveland, right? And obviously you born and raised there. You love that place. You went to college there. Um, do you think you could, uh, you think you could ever find yourself writing about other people and other interesting teams? I think, I think it's possible, but I guess I won't call it being, I'm lazy, but uh, resources, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of resources in Cleveland to write about Cleveland things. Uh, the public library here is fabulous. There's so much detail and information there, and they're extremely helpful. And uh, a lot of national papers, things around microfilm. So it's it's easy for me just to stay here. 
Um, but I could, uh, it's probably could write about other cities and other places because things are so accessible now online that you could do in the old days. If I wanted to write about something in St. Louis, I'd have to go there and visit the libraries and historical societies and, and take notes there. And, um, that was kind of difficult to do, but it's something that I could do. I mean, there's a lot of other teams I'm interested in and, and ball players and things around there that, um, she's from Cleveland. There may have been a book written about her, I think, but, uh, her, her name was Mrs. Britton, and she, through her father, Frank Robeson, she inherited the St. Louis Cardinals in uh, 1911, and she, I believe, was the first female owner of a major league team. Maybe that was something in the 1880s or something, but as far as the modern era, the National American League, she actually owned the team and was an active owner. Now, she was only in about seven years or so, but she ran into a ton of adversity because being the only woman doing that, the men were not going to take her seriously, and I don't know about her ball players if they would would respect her or not. I, I don't know, but I thought that would be something for a story. You know, even though she yeah, she was born and raised in Cleveland, but her career was in St. Louis and 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 other kind of other people like that who kind of broke barriers and uh, in different time areas in in, um, in the area. So yeah, I'm not averse to doing that or trying to do that. Uh, but you know, I know I've, I've focused on on Cleveland because it's it's been uh, it's been fairly I wouldn't say easy, but um, I know what my resources are and I know how to access them and that that kind. Kind of kept me working from a Cleveland angle. Yeah, it makes sense. And I, I'm sure it has nothing to do with the rivalries, right? No, probably nothing. <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing to do with that at all. I have written a lot about the Yankees because all the, all the times they would play Cleveland. So all my books, there's quite a bit of detail about the Yankees in there, about the things that happened with Ruth and Gehrig and uh, DiMaggio and, and others along the line. And in the 40s, the pennant race in uh, 48, we were fighting the Yankees almost the whole year. And almost every game we played was crucial. So I've written a lot about um, about New York as well. And the other American League cities. I've written a lot about Detroit and Chicago and Philadelphia at that time, the old days, and uh, and St. Louis. And um, who am I missing? Chicago or uh, Boston. So, so I, I'm fairly familiar with those cities, too, by um, by just by reading their uh, their interactions with Cleveland. I've learned a lot about those cities and, and their ballplayers, too. Hmm. And you've also written um, a children's book, right? Yeah, I did. I did write a children's book on Cy Young. Um, that was a fun experience. I um, hadn't had any plans to do so, but my publisher approached me and they wanted to see if I'd be interested in writing a baseball book for children. And I thought, geez, I've never I'd never written for children. I'm not sure. But uh, I thought about it and worked out some ideas. And I thought that would be something good to do and thought the best person I could think of was Cy Young. That, that he played a long, long time ago it would be like a bit of a history lesson for children, but he was one of the all-time greats. And I think if you're a casual baseball fan, you know what the Cy Young Award is. You might know that he actually was a person that lived. So I thought, what about going into detail about Cy's life and and uh, and seeing that? Um, and when I did the research, I said, yeah, this I think this is worthwhile for children. He was basically a farmer. That was his number one thing in life. He was a great pitcher, but he spent every waking moment working on his farm, taking care of his animals and plowing the fields. He lived right outside of Canton in a very small area called Paoli, which is a farm community. And he was really that he was just good old Cy who lived in the neighborhood. Then he would excuse himself for four or five months to play baseball and be the best pitcher at it. But he was... Um, just a regular guy. And I thought it'd be good to to show kids what how people live. They worked very hard. They went to school. They uh, they understood and respected the law. They um, 
lived exemplary lives. And, and I thought that would be a good lesson for, for children. So it worked out and I was very happy with, uh, with the results of it. Though I needed a lot of coaching and editorial wise about writing on a level for a nine or 10 year old. That, that was not the easiest thing to do because I'd have a tendency to, you know, use the big words and all of that, but, but a child's not going to understand that. So mm. I had I had to uh, do some rewriting and uh, and things, but I, I got I think I got into the right mode after a while. I was able to accomplish uh, what I wanted to, and I'm pleased I'm pleased with the results. And the funny thing is, a lot of adults read it because they just want to learn more about Cy Young, and they know it's you know it's it's a quick easy read, but you know it gives all these basic details. You want to learn about the 1903 World Series, the first one, uh, his perfect game that he pitched, how how he jumped to. Uh, uh, he left the National League and came to the American League and uh, how he lived later on and, you know, his his later years and, and his views on things. So I, I, I do um, when I when I go to book fairs and things, I do sell a number of Cy Young books to adults. And I tell them, you know, this is it's a very it's really meant for, for younger people. But, you know, you can learn a lot about Cy and his time period and uh, and people will, will, will buy it just and read it as as as, uh, as something they want to learn. That's cool. That's cool. What do you think the most fulfilling part is for you about being an author? I've I've always I'm always curious like what motivates people to write a book and then you know, I mean, I've talked to some people and they say, well, you know, it's it's the research portion and then some people say it's the uh sense of accomplishment once I've climbed that mountain, you know. It's like what what do you think is the, your favorite part of it? Well, Probably all the the glamour and excitement, but <laughs> 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 all all the accolades you get to see your name. Yeah. I, I think the main reason I write is I'm hoping to educate people about a certain time in our lives, a certain time period that people can learn about things. I think that I think that's the the main reason I do it to uh, to help people understand a little bit more about where they came from and what what America was like in in different times and I think that that's the main thing because people will come to me and tell me I didn't know this right I did I learned this by reading your book I didn't know that this had happened um, um, and I try to give people a refresher course and some of the main things that happened you know the, the stock market crash uh, World War one and World War two um, the pandemic in 1919 and you know, we did have one and, and people did die and to try and, and educate people on those so they, they can learn about these things that they they didn't know and try and write in an easy conversational manner where it's not like a, you have to have a dictionary when you read my books and it's like I don't understand the words he's saying but uh, something people can understand and relate to and so I think that's my main accomplishment is to uh, is to get it out there and see it in libraries especially I, I enjoy that when I know that libraries purchase the books and people take them out and and they learn something and then people engage me in conversations now and then about I read your book and I, I read about what you said about this and don't you think about and then and have a conversation about well yeah I think that was really true and, and uh, maybe I didn't give a complete picture of that but I wanted you to get the basics about about what had happened this particular event or this particular year the presidential election and, and why the local politics were important so that to me is very gratifying when people come back to me and say they learned something or and, and uh, there are some things to have questions about that that's I think the main reason I do it um, to get to get so people have another resource if they want to learn about about the past and how it was. Hmm. Well, if learning about that time in in history and kind of understanding that better is really important, I mean, do you feel like that's something lost today that people just don't I, I take do. the time and energy to to kind of I research do. and stuff? 
Yeah, I think a lot of our history is lost and, and uh, people don't really get the background I think they should have about our history. And uh, everybody has grandparents and great grandparents. And I think we should know something about them and how they lived. I think that's important as far as as family life and being a person. You should really know what struggles that they may have made and, and what they had to do to give you the life that you have and the things that they went through. And to show things that um, today, you, you know, you take a lot for granted that, yeah, we've got everything, you know, you just get up in the morning, you know, look at your cell phone, uh, go on, go on the, uh, on your laptop and, and uh, catch up on everything and do it, you know, in a short amount of time. But I think it's important for people to know it wasn't always like that, that you had to take some extra steps. You had to do things you don't have to today. And people worked very, very hard to get these things to happen. It didn't just someone sat down and said, I know I can make a cell phone and I'll put one together in a few days and uh, we'll sell them and you can all have them and, and I'll communicate all the time. Oh, I'll put the internet on it too. So you have everything at your fingertips. It didn't happen in 48 hours. It took a lot of time and research and experimentation from very, very dedicated people to make it happen. As far as even radio, to get the first radios out and television and movies. You know, today you you want you stream your movies and all, but then it was quite a process years ago to put things on film you know take photographs with film and get them developed mm. and get them you know people had to take those extra steps to go drop off the film pick it up it wasn't instantaneous that you had to do other things and you walk sometimes you walk to school and uh, and you did uh, you did things differently then so I, I think that's something that we've we've lost today and i don't think it hurts anyone to try and learn about how things were for their parents or their their relatives and uh, you know i do some genealogy you know it's kind of for fun but but i think it's something that uh, more people should do to go back back and see about your family and your roots and where you came from and, and, and really who you are and what they what they were dedicated to to eventually bring you into the world and give you all the things that you have that it was a sacrifice for a lot of people but they did it willingly hmm. so it's like you would hope that people would gain a better appreciation for the things we have and the the labor that used to be associated with uh, really just doing mundane tasks, which is such a grind back then. Now we push a button, or it just yeah, automatically happens. Right? And you can you can work from home when. Uh, not that I mean, I'm like, oh, back in my day, I walked five miles of school. But <laughs> when I was about fourteen, I started mowing lawns. You know, for people, and I got like five dollars or whatever. Even I got that, but most of us did so. We had paper routes, and by the time you go into college, a lot of us had saved a decent amount of money to help pay for school. I know today it's astronomical. You couldn't possibly raise fifty or sixty thousand for your college, but back then it was uh, it was very common to do that to have a job when you were and you were sixteen. You could drive, then you could work at different places, um, and, and we all we did that, and it was kind of like you didn't give it a second thought. It was like, nah, I don't want to work. It was like, yeah. I need to. And, and, you, and you just did it. And, um, and you, you know, you try to, to save some money and uh, do what you could. I know it's like the old guy and the old, the old, oh yeah, look at that old guy. He doesn't know grandpa what he, what he's talking about. But, <laughs> you know, I think those things help you help build your character and, and, and build where it isn't just handed to you where you can have all these things, you know, and, and really never have to leave your house and you can function, you can order your groceries, you can do whatever. Um, um, I, I just think that uh, it, it helps more to uh, to appreciate things things that happened before you. I mean, but you know, I, I applaud people today, and I'm not saying I, I I disapprove. No, people have all these wonderful inventions they can do, and all these things to make life easier, and that's great. That that's terrific. But uh, I think there is, you know, there is um, there is other things that happen. I think it's important to know about uh, how 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 you got where you got. You know, I, I guess I've said that over and over, but I, I'm a strong believer in that. 
Yeah, for sure. You know, something you were talking about earlier, um, kind of touched on something I've thought about before. And it's kind of these, I don't know, maybe like cultural touchstones. Like, so at, at one point you talked about film, right? We didn't have film and then all of a sudden we could capture images. And then uh, eventually we made moving pictures, right? Like uh, movies and stuff like that. And then, you know, obviously like the recording of audio and being able to play that back. And then eventually we had radio, right? Where you could literally hear somebody's voice from, you know, miles and miles away, which I'm sure was like mind blowing. And then, you know, the advent of television, all of a sudden I have these moving pictures inside my house. That must have been so crazy. Uh, people like getting on airplanes for the first time. Because wasn't it like from the first manned flight to the time we went into space was like within a human generation or something, which is insane to think about, you know, like how how rapidly that stuff is changing. And I was, I was trying to think is like what. I mean, then there was like the advent of personal computers in your homes. And now I think my generation, because I'm, I'm about, I'm in my forties. So I think my generations was probably the internet, you know, like the, the, the internet really was kind of this big cultural touchstone. Oh, sure. And it feels like, it feels like we've run out. Like what else, what else can they, I mean, there's not going to be another radio or, you know, TV where it just kind of magically pops in. It just, it feels like nowadays it's just slight enhancements on the things we already have it doesn't feel like there's gonna be i i like i i'm not a futurist i can't imagine what it would look like but it's hard to it, it actually kind of makes me feel a little sad for um you know like these big remarkable changes that happen and uh the fact that we probably won't see another one of those in my lifetime yeah i i agree with what you're saying yeah i don't, I don't see what the next the next big thing could be when we have all these mediums how do you improve upon them you can always make them a little bit better, but um, I kind of imagine what would replace the internet or or your or your iPhone or your iPad. That there's something that would be even even more remarkable. Maybe there will be. Um, as far as travel, um, you know, we've done we've gone a million miles in automobiles. How they've changed and, and airplanes um, and and, uh, and, all, and all kinds of things. I don't know how you can improve greatly upon those or come up with something new. I don't know. It probably won't happen. I probably, if there is, I probably won't see it. But um, yeah, you think we have what we have, and we're just that—that's where we're at. The the um, excitement of new invention, really. There, there. I don't know where that where that can come from, or where 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 that can be with all the things that we have. How how we can revolutionize something? Like, and people would say, in thirty years, you used to look at a at a computer. You looked at an iPad. I can't believe you did that. Um, maybe that'll be, but um, it's hard to. It's hard to imagine how, how you can replace on, on some of the things that that we have and the technology we have we have today. I don't, I don't see how. I, I suppose it would be like uh, routine trips to the moon for everybody. You know, you, <laughs> just, you get in a spaceship in the morning, you come back two days later, and it's like no, it's like no big deal. Maybe that'll be something that uh, will be in the future or Mars. I, I know some travel to Mars. I've read I've read a lot of things about how they're looking to um, looking to the uh, feasibility of that. Maybe, maybe that will. Uh, but yeah, you're right. They're really uh, uh, technology is fantastic, and I just don't see how we can have some kind of like uh, game changing invention coming along now. Hmm. But yeah, that that fascinates me to like look back at kind of those time periods and just like the excitement there must have been associated with that stuff. Like when you get your first TV or your first radio set, you know, yeah. in your house, and oh. the idea that a radio used to actually be like. A piece of furniture it was like a big thing that you would put in your house you know it wasn't like, like we think about like you were saying as a kid you had a transistor radio no it was like i mean it was a piece of furniture it was like a cabinet things were big 
Oh yeah, it was part of part of your living room. Yeah, you gather around the radio, and same thing with television. They were like huge consoles, but the screen was really small. But they were huge, and they weighed a ton. And when mm-hmm. the they got delivered, wherever they put it, it was never going to move because they they weighed. <laughs> that was it, and they were like very intricate. And there's some were made with had. Um, record players on the top of them. RCA made some, so you could play records. There was a big speaker in there and you would do that until, uh, until in the sixties when speaker and, and uh, hi-fi revolution came along and FM radio. I mean, FM radio was a big invention when I was a teenager that there was there, but there were no channels. And all of a sudden there's FM you can listen to and you can get receivers for it. And you, and there's rock and roll stations that don't have a commercial every, every three minutes, you can listen to like 10 minutes of music. That was quite a, quite a thing. Now, (laughs) I mean, now you you listen to Sirius FM or you listen in your car, you listen to Apple or or Amazon, but it was like when FM came like, Oh my gosh, we can listen to these, these rock and roll stations playing this really heavy music and that was like i can't believe this this is just this is just fantastic um but you know now and now it's, it's run of the mill now it's it's uh everybody has but i guess i can that's if i ever say like you know my life i could say that you know i lived through all these inventions that was just marvelous to to see all these things come to pass a color television you know one person in the street would have it and if you were friendly with them they'd let you come over for an hour you could watch color tv that was like, oh my gosh i don't believe this this is something <laughs> yeah lived through that i think is, is really cool to to uh you know to look back on and and, and that so i guess i can i can say i guess i'm lucky in, in that sense, being uh, born in the '50s and uh, still alive today, that the the things that have transpired in all these years are just phenomenal. What, what we didn't have and what we have now, it was all, it was you know black and white. There was no color. The TVs and your clothes and the pictures you took, you know, there was no color to them at all. And all of a sudden, you get a color photograph and you can see your eyes and your hair color and the clothes you were wearing. It's like, whoa, what is this? Is unbelievable. I've, and movies came out in color and just that was just like such a phenomenal phenomenon that um so i guess i should say i'm grateful really for for living in that time and living through these things and growing up with the beatles i had to get that in there that uh first got hooked on the beatles i was nine years old i was like this is what is this this is just for me <laughs> this is, i was hard to describe but it's like my this is life-changing this music is like nothing i've ever heard and it's so cool and so and so exciting and then it just went from there to all the other stars that came along dylan and um you know all the others and uh and clapton and and all of them and, and uh, jimmy hendrix and, and just to see that you were there when they put out their first record and you were able to rush home and listen to it today you know on, on Sirius, you can hear hendrix almost every hour or anybody you know you can hear all the bands but back then it was like someone's gonna play uh they're gonna play pink floyd or led zeppelin like my gosh i'm gonna hear a song of theirs it's like wow it was it was a very i, I guess i should feel very very fortunate for, for all that i think as, as humans that's just the way we work is that uh once we get used to something we just take it for granted right we just kind of don't think about it do you do you ever uh do you ever reflect on that stuff like uh i mean i know we are right now but i mean does that something that pops up because like I don't, I don't reflect on my uh, childhood pre-internet. I don't ever like think about how much better it is now or, or worse for some people, you know, depending on your, your outlook, but I don't don't really think about that stuff. I think it comes with age too. The older you get, the more nostalgic you get. I think you start looking back 
Um, and then like the high school reunions become a little more important when it's a 40 year or 50 year, you, you have, it's something like, I want to see my old friends. You know, I haven't seen them in 40, 50 years. I like to see, see them and, and, and try and catch up with them. I mean, there's so much to catch up with people that you haven't seen that you're very close with, you know, you hung out with every day and, and you did things within your college, your college friends, like 30, 40 years later, it becomes a little, to me, it becomes a more important to, to try to check back. And I guess you're kind of looking for, you're looking at your lost youth and, and it becomes more important to, uh, <laughs> to reconnect with people and talk, remember when we did this, remember we did, oh yeah, I remember that and, and find out how they're doing and talk about what, what's going on. Now, of course, we talk mostly about our, our health. Yeah, I had that surgery last year. It's, it's kind of like something you never would have talked about 40 years ago, but that's a common topic. But, but I think I think as the older you get, you kind of look back more fondly to your earlier years and you think about your youth and what it was like to, you know, to run a mile. You know, you think, you know, now you can walk the block, you can walk a few blocks, but you could run or to circle, you know, to circle the bases or or run a hundred yard, you know, pick up a football and run a hundred yards down the field, what that was like, you know, and and, and uh, tackling somebody even or or you know. Or blocking a shot when playing basketball or or golf hitting a drive 250 feet or something in the fairway like you couldn't do any of those things today but you, i think you look back and you know you you get more more fond more fondly uh attached i guess to these things and want to want to relive them i guess i suppose it you just can't uh, you know your youth is gone and, and uh i think so the past becomes more more valuable to you and more more uh more precious i guess mm -hmm. i thought high school reunions were just so that you could uh see how much better you're doing than everybody else yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's also, it's like, you want to go like, Hey, I'm still here. You know, I'm still walking around and all that. And I heard that these, this guy and this woman, they're not there. They can't, they couldn't make it and all, but I did. Yeah. Kind of like you want to one up people, I suppose, but another, <laughs> on another level to, to, to talk to them and, and yeah. reminisce is, is a lot of fun. Um, I am one of my, my best friends from my childhood. I hadn't seen him since college and we reconnected, um, last spring so it was probably about 40 plus years hadn't seen to know anything at all now we talk uh every week and it's like great fun you know the, to, to re like yeah we used to do all these things and it, it seems it's it's to me something i look forward to, to to talk to my old my old pals my old buddies from all that time and look, look forward to catching up and some of the things that we do i think i think it's kind of fun and uh, but i guess it's you know i think it's an age thing you know the older you get you want to cling to the you do your past and and, and keep it alive and, and, so, and so you do and you take a lot of time a lot of time doing that hmm. well you uh we talked about you writing but i know you also speak occasionally and i was reading that uh august of last year right you got to speak at the hall of fame what was that like i'm assuming yeah, that was a milestone right oh it was that was probably the highlight of my, my career yeah i love cooperstown i've gone there three or four times back in back in the day they didn't have uh the player files online so you would go there to the library and I spent a couple of days you know, looking at actual player folders, taking out the pieces of paper and making copies. Of so I was I had gone to the hall about three or four times and I'd, I'd make sure I set aside at least three, four hours in that day to go in and just walk through the hall and do that. So it's really a, a fun place to be. Love going there. And um, when my book, Victory on Two Fronts, came out, my publisher always sends them to the Hall of Fame. They have a speaker series, but I never got really any feedback. But 
uh, last, uh, I guess, March or April, I got an email from the education department at the hall that they wanted me to speak on Victory in Two Fronts. And you could have, uh, I could have fallen out of my chair. I, I just couldn't believe I'm actually going to get to go there and speak. Uh, I can't think of anything better than that. It was just so exciting. I loved every second of it. Just just being there and going up on the stage and uh, they video it and they stream it live and and speaking at that place to me, which is it's sacred ground to me, the baseball mm-hmm. hall of fame. I mean, even though baseball didn't really come from there as far as I know, but it just, it seems to be the ideal place. And to walk those halls to me, I'm always like, I'm like a kid. This is the greatest thing in the world. And to be, actually be a part of it and speak, I, I was thrilling. And I just had the, the greatest time of my life, I think, doing that. It was like, I can't compare anything else to that. I've I've spoken a lot of places with some large audiences and I've been on live television and, and, and other things and uh, spoke to pretty large groups. But that was, that was it. walking up on that stage there and saying, I'm on the, the library stage here the Baseball Hall of Fame, where some of the great authors in the United States have spoken and some of the most terrific people involved in baseball have been there. I was able to share the same stage when that, that meant a tremendous amount to me that it showed me in some ways my, what I've done was worth it. You know, what I've tried to contribute to the field. Yes, I, I was definitely worth it. All the months and months and years of research and writing. And, and, and I think that that made it all worth it there. It was just a uh, a great, a great, great moment that I, I still look back on and uh, still, still very, very pleased about the whole thing. Hmm. Well, perhaps the the first of many uh, speaking. Engagements. <laughs> I don't know, but, but one, <laughs> once I was glad to do it once, and I hope to go back again just as a tourist and, and uh, spend a day in the hall and, and going through the shops and you know eating in some of the restaurants. There, just a, it's an idyllic place. It's it's a slice of life, Americana when, when you go there. It's just. It's hard. It's hard to feel that way in just about any other place where it's just uh, you're in a very special environment, and, and it, it's just really, really a great place. To me, it feels like it feels like uh, an actor who could say they've won an Oscar or won an Emmy, right? Or uh, a chef that's won like a James Beard Award. It's like it's it's something you almost want to have on your 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 headstone. Right. It's like, yeah, it's I almost. I went. I spoke at the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> on my headstone would be. Uh, but it, it's uh, it's just a great, great, great honor to be recognized with so many other people that uh, written you know just fabulous books, bestsellers, and uh, and and newspaper reporters and ball players and other to be able to be at the same place they were and to, and to speak is uh, is really uh, yeah. It's I, I can't think of anything that could top that. I really I really can't. Does it make you feel more connected to oh, uh, to yeah. baseball, to history, yeah. to all of it? That I contributed something, yeah. That I think, yeah, that I'm, I cool. I did do something that people noticed and people have used and, and benefited from. That that that's something that always that'll always stick with me. Hmm. Does it feel like um, feel like a legacy for you? Yeah, it, it does. It, it really does. It uh, when I started writing, I didn't set out to say like. My, I'll culminate my writing career with speaking at the Hall of Fame, and you know, it didn't enter my mind really. But that it act, that it happened, um, it's it's made me very very proud. And um, yeah, milestone, my legacy. I, I, that um, my great nephews and nieces in the years forward will tell their should. Yeah, your your great great uncle, he actually spoke at that Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Or if they go there to visit, they'll say your your great great uncle spoke right at this spot. He was here and he and he spoke to the people here. And his books are in the library here. So that that uh, that's something that I, I I'm pretty sure will be passed on. And and uh, very very happy, very very happy with that. That's cool. You didn't secretly scratch your name 
on a, on a post somewhere so you could tell everybody to go look for it? I wanted to. I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to do it. Yeah, I really did. But of course, of course, I didn't. No, I just looked around. And uh, my some of my favorite things there, there's two lifelike statues of uh, his Babe Ruth and Ted Williams, if I ever did. They're all both about six feet tall. And they, they, they're just I just love to look at those. And say like, you know, they're about to come to life. You know, Babe is mm. about to speak or, or Ted is going to say something about hitting it. It's just it's just wonderful to, to stand there and and to see all the people. It was there were kids of all ages there with their parents there were families there i think there were a couple of uh teams of like 10 and 12 year olds that came on a bus and all went in there and there were boys and girls and grandpas and grandpas and it's just wonderful to see everybody there with smiles on their faces and reading and looking around and uh, walking up and down the streets and having ice cream cones and, and eating popcorn it just is just a great experience to be a, be a part of that just that that is just something that will again will always stick with me and and uh to my dying day i'll probably think about think about our our time at cooperstown and uh, that i was able for a short time to actually be a part part of the hall of fame and contribute there that's cool forever part of history forever um have changed the way people uh, look at various time periods and contribute to that that's um more than i can say at this point so <laughs> That's you're, still awesome. a young, you're still a young man you've got you've got a lot of years ahead of you i don't know i you say i'm young sometimes if i sneeze wrong i won't be able to tie my shoes the next day so still, <laughs> it's creeping up on me it's still it's yeah. coming for me i know i know what that's like yeah. i hear the pitter patter uh, of footsteps behind me it's coming <laughs> <laughs> all right scott well i tell you what you've been so generous with your time uh right here towards the end i usually ask uh, my guest is there uh, any way that you would like people out on this crazy internet to interact with you, uh, if you so choose, you know, do you want to, uh, social media, your website, your books, is there anything specific you'd like people to go and check out? Sure. Uh, my website is scottlonger.com. It tells about all my activities and all the books that I've written and what I'm, what I'm working on now. Um, they can, you can leave me a message there and I'll be happy to get back in touch with you. I love to talk baseball. Um, Sometimes people just message me. They want to talk about something that happened in baseball. I'm, I'm happy to happy to respond. Um, I am a, have finished a bio of Ray Chapman. That was something that was on the table for a long, long time. That I wanted to write about Ray, and that is finished and is with my publisher and got my fingers crossed that I can pass the next few hurdles and hopefully see the book in print uh, at the end of next year, or maybe early 2024. But I, I think it's a... Um, I, I think it's going to be a good book in the sense that everyone knows what happened to Ray in 1920, where he lost his life by a pitch ball. But his life was a lot more than that. He had a really terrific life and the thing he accomplished quite a bit. And that's what I wanted to get across in the book, that uh, Ray was a complete person and didn't just was born and died in, in August of 1920. He had a, quite a life uh, for, for a young man. He was destined for great things that unfortunately didn't happen. But I think it'll be a, a good addition to the baseball, a baseball literature when hopefully it comes out next year. So I'm ex excited about that. But that's if you want, if anyone wants to get in touch, be glad to glad to talk at uh, scottlonger.com. All right. And it, uh, it worked for me. I, uh, messaged you and you came back and here you are. <laughs> so, uh, again, Scott, thank you for your time and your attention. And, uh, let me click stop on all these buttons real quick. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate it.